Welcome to Sounds from the Shadows, the podcast which is normally where the shadow girls get together, talk about folklore, fairy tales, storytelling, things that have caught our interest. But at the moment is just me, Emily. I'm coming to you not this time from a blanket fort. I am now in a cupboard, which is a little bit different. Actually, currently my microphone is sitting on what used to be my dress-up box and is still filled up with dress-up clothes because... Just because I'm grown up doesn't mean I can't still play dress up. And by grown up, I mean I have grown to an adult height rather than I have matured in any way. I am still a child, just a very tall child. The dress up box, though, it has its own stories. It's this really big old travelling chest, and it was my mum's dress up box. But before it became a dress up box, it was the luggage of Emily Creedy who was my, let's see if I can get this right, my mother's mother's aunt by marriage. So my, my great-gran-aunt. Yes, I think that's right. My great-gran-aunt. And she was Emily Creedy. She became Emily Freeman. And the, the case is still printed with E. Freeman. And she and my great-gran-uncle met in India. He had gone out. His name was... I think it was Edward, also an E. He went out uh, as a doctor. There were two brothers and they both went out um, to work in a hospital in India. I'm not sure exactly which part. And he met Emily Creedy and the two of them fell in love and got married. And we have pictures of them somewhere uh, at their wedding and there are elephants in the background, which is quite nice. But this box uh, was one of was part of their luggage when they came back Um and then it became a dress-up box. So it's a it's a well-travelled box. It did originally have the luggage stamps and parcel notes stuck to it. Uh, but unfortunately, my mum and her brothers, they peeled them off to, to go put them somewhere else. So I'm only left with sort of very faint residues of where they were stuck. But it's a nice box. It's got like brass, brass corner things and brass clips to, to lock it together. It's a nice box. I mean... It's not the most portable because it's a big square box. I might put a picture of it on Twitter. But it was able, when I was a child, to fit uh, all of my dress-up clothes in it. And if I took all of my dress-up stuff out of the box, I could fit in it. Because it is quite a big box. Uh, I, I was a bit smaller at the time. I don't know if I could squeeze into it at the moment. Uh, maybe with a bit of help, but I don't know if my spine bends that much. You see, this is what happens when I record on my own. Uh, without the rest of the Shadow Girls, I go on a tangent about boxes. I'm not meant to be talking about boxes. I'm meant to be talking about dragons. I love dragons. Anytime, as if someone asks me my opinion on a book or a film or a play, uh, I, I will give you the opinion, but there will be a small part of my brain going, could use more dragons. Because I, I think I think most things could probably be, be improved by an addition of more dragons. Anyone out there planning a, a new revival of Shakespeare or Ibsen or any of the great classics and looking for how to introduce a new spinach, maybe consider adding a dragon or two. I can't really date where my love of dragons originally came from. I do know as a child I, I went through a strong dinosaur phase aged from about four to six I didn't really play with dolls, but I did dress up my model dinosaurs. I used to cut up socks to make sort of jumpery things for them. So my dragon love could come from 
this this dinosaur fascination in my youth. And when my interests turned from the sciences more to the arts and to fantasy genres. But I think it's earlier than that. I think my love of dragons might come from Puff the Magic Dragon. Now, for those of you not familiar with it, Puff the Magic Dragon is a song from the early 60s performed by a group called Peter, Paul and Mary about Puff the Magic Dragon, who lives in a magical land called Honolulu and is friends with a human boy called Jackie Paper. And my dad used to play this song on the piano when I was very young, when I was about maybe two or three. And he would play it on the piano and sing along, and I would dance along. Well, I say dance. Uh, What I would actually do would be run uh, around the table and try not to fall over. But it counted as dancing to me. And in the song, Puff and... Jackie, they go on many adventures. They they sail on a boat with billowed sail. They encounter kings and pirates and princes and have a wonderful time. But there's a line, dragons live forever, not so little boys. And one day, Jackie stops coming to play with Puff because, well, he, he's grown up and he's too old to go to a magical land called Honolulu and play with a talking dragon. And this makes Puff very, very sad. Uh... Without his life's companion, Puff could not be brave. So Puff goes into his cave and curls up and cries. And that's how the song ends. But my dad decided that this was this was actually quite a, a sad ending, to have the dragon alone crying in the cave and saying that you have that you grow up and you, you can't access that world of imagination anymore. So my dad actually wrote um some extra verses to the song where one grey morning through the rain, Jackie comes back and calls out to Puff that you know, he's missed him and he's never going to go away again. And they go sailing together and, it, and it's a happy ending. And I, for years, thought that was the actual version. That was the full version of the song. And it was only quite recently that I found out that, no, my dad had, had written those verses himself, had added on to the song to give it a happy ending which was just really sweet. So I think that my love of dragons, it might come from my dad and Puff the Magic Dragon. But this is not meant to be a podcast where I wax lyrical about my childhood, even though I've been doing that now for about six minutes. Sorry. This is meant to be a storytelling podcast, and I'm going to tell you some dragon stories. And the first story I'm going to tell you is the story of St. George. St. George and the Dragon. Now, St. George is the uh, the patron saint of England, despite the fact that he n- never set foot anywhere near England. He probably came from somewhere around Turkey, possibly of Greek descent, and his famous story of him and the dragon took place in the Middle East. But somehow he has become the patron saint of England. And I know St. Patrick, who's the patron saint of Ireland, was Welsh, but he at least came to Ireland, there's no record of St. George going anywhere near England. And I'm I'm not going to go into the whole thing about St. George and how his legend evolved and changed and came from various other saints, because quite simply, I don't, I'm not an expert in that area and I don't have the mental energy to go and do that enormous amount of research. But I'm sure there are definitely people out there who can tell you about the evolution of the legend of St. George. But I'm just going to tell you about the story of the dragon. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, and far, far away, 
there was a kingdom near a lake. The lake had been there long before the kingdom had. And the people, well, they remembered that there was something about it, something special and something strange, but no one could remember what it was. And so, gradually, the people from the kingdom began to go out on the lake, began to fish on it. And when they threw down the anchors from their boats, they disturbed something at the bottom. Something that had been sleeping for a long, long time. They woke the dragon. The mighty beast rose up from out of the water. It looked around the shores of its lake and saw they had been invaded by creatures who had built up the shores, who had hollowed out the mountains, and the dragon became angry. It opened up its mighty jaws and let out its horrible breath. This dragon, it didn't breathe fire. It breathed plague and disease and pestilence. Its breath caused the milk to dry up in the cows. It caused the crops to wither and the people to grow sick. The kingdom called for heroes to come and fight the dragon, but none could face it and its horrible breath. Eventually, the king realised that he had no choice but to try to reason with the dragon, try to bargain with it for the sake of his people. And so a message was sent to the dragon. What would it take for the dragon to go back down under the lake, for the dragon to go back to sleep and to leave them in peace? And the dragon, well, it told them it was hungry, and it would not leave them be until its hunger was satisfied. The people asked, what, what was it that the dragon wanted? They would give it anything. They would give it the fattest cows, the, the, the fluffiest of sheep. But the dragon didn't want to eat mutton or beef. The dragon wanted human flesh. And not a normal human. No, no scrawny peasant would do for the dragon. This was a dragon with a refined palate. And it would only be satisfied if it could feast upon a young woman of noble birth and of great beauty as well. Now the king and the people, they were, they were horrified by this. The, the fact that they were being asked to give up one of their daughters, one of their sisters to the dragon. But they reasoned, maybe one life could be given up if it would save so many more. So all of the names of all of the beautiful noble maidens were placed in a great cauldron. All of the citizens assembled to witness the king draw out the name to see which young woman would be sacrificed to the dragon. The king, he placed his shaking hand into the cauldron, took a piece of paper, pulled it out, but as he read the name, he turned white. The name he read out was Sadra, and Sadra was the king's own daughter. When Sadra's name was read out, there were great cries all through the kingdom, cries of relief from the families who knew now that their daughter would be safe, but also cries of horror that the princess herself was to be fed to the dragon. The king sent out a decree. Any hero, any person, man, woman or child, who could come and defeat the dragon would be given a great reward. They would be given half the kingdom and the princess's hand in marriage if they so wished. But none came to answer the call. And so on the appointed day, 
Sadra was led out of the palace, dressed like a bride, led to the edge of the lake, and chained to a rock there to await the dragon. Now, as it happened, on this very day, St. George happened to be riding by as he travelled from place to place having adventures. As he travelled by the side of the lake, he spied what appeared to be a woman chained to a rock and weeping. He rode closer to find out what was the matter. The woman, who was Sadra, called out to him to flee. He must leave. He must go before the dragon arrived. But when St. George heard that there was a dragon and that this young woman was to be fed to it, well, he made up his mind that he would fight the beast. He hid himself behind a clump of bushes and waited till the dragon appeared. The dragon rose out from the water. It didn't notice the sunlight gleaming off George's armour. The dragon only had eyes for the tasty meal before it. It approached Sadra, licking its chops, saliva dripping from its jaws. But just in that moment, St George charged at the dragon with his lance. Thanks to a mixture of skill and surprise, George was able to cut a great wound in the side of the dragon. The wounded beast turned around, hoping to slink back to the safety of the lake, but George leapt from his horse. He landed on the back of the creature's neck and wrestled with it, trying to hold its mighty jaws closed so that it could not breathe out its noxious fumes. George called to Sadra to throw him her belt, her girdle made of golden chains, that he might be able to tie up the creature's mouth. Sadra loosed her girdle and tossed it to the knight, who was able to use it to bind the creature's terrible jaws closed. The dragon, as well as having terrible breath, also had a terrible bite, but it put so much of its muscles into closing its mouth down that very few were left spare to open it up again. And so, with Sadra's belt, George was able to secure the dragon's mouth so that it could not open, it could not bite, and it could not breathe its noxious breath. Safe from the breath and the bite of the dragon, George removed himself from its back, drew his sword and cut the creature's head clean from its body. He then cut the chains that bound Sadra to the rock. With the hand of the princess in one hand and with the head of the dragon in the other, George went to the kingdom, to the palace, to the throne of the king and declared he had slain the beast and saved the princess. There was great rejoicing all through the kingdom, not just that the beast had been slain and that the princess saved, but now that there was to be a royal wedding and that the future king was to be one such as Saint George, a man who could slay a dragon. George and Sadra wed, and together ruled over half the kingdom. And when the old king died, they ruled over all the kingdom. They were fair and just rulers. And they lived happily ever after. According to one version of the story, uh, in other versions of the story, George seems to have continued going off on adventures and eventually got himself martyred by decapitation. But uh, that's a story for someone else to tell. If you're familiar with your folklore, your legends and your myths, You're probably going to see a lot of familiarities in this story to a number of other well-known stories. Perseus and Andromeda, that's one that comes to mind from the Greek. In Ireland, you've got uh, Fionn 
slaying Alan on the Hill of Tara, though Alan the Burner is not a dragon, uh, despite how he may appear in certain illustrations and being called Alan the Burner. He is either a fairy or a paste, depending on sources. We don't have dragons in Ireland, unfortunately, but we do have pastes. So the idea of a, a young woman, probably a princess or similar, being changed to a rock to be sacrificed to the monstrous appetites of a dragon or similar beast, only for a hero to come along at the last moment and save her, it's become a trope. It's become a cliché at this point. It's rather beautifully parodied in Terry Pratchett's Guards, Guards. Guards, Guards is one of the Discworld novels and it's the first in the ones that follow the Night Watch with the characters of Commander Vines, Captain Carrot, Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobby Nobbs, the only person known to have to carry a certificate stating that he is human. And of course, Sybil Rankin. I absolutely adore Sybil. Lady Sybil Rankin is the last of the great and illustrious House of Rankin, one of the most noble houses in Ankh-Morpork. And despite being possibly the richest and most illustrious lady in all of the city, all of the kingdom even, she's a very sensible down-to-earth woman. She sort of stomps around in an old tweed skirt and sensible boots. The type of person who'll sort of slap you on the back and say, jolly good, and takes no nonsense. She's wonderful. And she also breeds dragons. If I ever did get to visit the Discworld, the place I would really, really want to go and visit would be the Sunshine Sanctuary for Sick Dragons. Try saying that six times fast. Which is, it's basically a small dragon shelter run by Lady Sybil Rankin. I can't talk at all. Because the Disc, being a place which has far more magic than sense, is a place with dragons. But with the exception of two occasions, most of the dragons are swamp dragons. And I sort of think of the swamp dragons of the Discworld as being, well, maybe a little bit like pugs on our world. They're kind of so ugly and badly put together that they're cute. Though unlike pugs, they, uh, they do have a slight tendency to explode. If, you know, nervous, frightened, excited, bored. And Lady Sybil, she breeds swamp dragons, but she also runs the shelter for abandoned swamp dragons. And in Guards, Guards, she is one of the few people who is truly able to appreciate getting to see and witness a dragon noblesse, one of the great dragons, even if she is also um, almost offered as a sacrifice to the dragon because she is the, the most noble maiden in the city. They're making a TV series based on the Night Watch of Ankh-Morpork in Terry Pratchett's Discworld. It's meant to be out think sometime this year and Lady Sybil is scheduled to be played by Lara Rossi and I hope they bring in her love of dragons. Sorry I've gone on a bit of a tangent about the Discworld. I love Terry Pratchett. A lot of stories of dragons that come from a western-ish European-ish background the dragons are portrayed as not particularly nice. They are the villains of the stories and they're beasts. They're beasts to be captured and killed. They might be cunning, but they're not shown as intelligent. Whereas in Eastern stories, the dragons are not only incredibly intelligent, but they are often protectors. They are venerated. They're sometimes even spirits or godlike beings. And I'm I'm speaking in very, very general terms here. But whereas more Western dragons tend to be associated with sort of elements of fire and elements of earth, 
Eastern dragons, they seem to be more associated with water and with air. And I'm going to tell you one of my favourite stories of an Eastern dragon. It's a Chinese story. It's the story of the dragon pearl, also called, and I apologise ahead of time, I... Wand Niang Tan, Watching Mother River Bends. Again, I apologise. I can just about manage to pronounce things in English, let alone any other language. But on with the story. Once upon a time, there was a poor village by the side of a river. The poorest inhabitants of this village were a widow and her young son. They lived in a little hut, and every day they would go out to the banks of the river and cut reeds. These reeds they would then weave into baskets and sell at the market for a little money. They were able to make just enough money to afford one small jar of rice, which they lived off. But one year, the summer was hot, and the rain did not come. There was drought all through the land. The river began to dry up, and everyone suffered, but no one in the village suffered quite as much as the widow and her son. There were no reeds for them to cut and weave. Their jar of rice was almost empty, and indeed the well in the centre of the village was almost running dry. The great river itself had dried up to merely a trickle, and one day the young boy was walking by it, trying to distract himself from his hunger and his thirst, and searching for anything along the bank of the river. He found a spot where the reeds and grasses were still growing, and when he stepped closer the ground under his feet felt wetter. He knelt down and saw that indeed the soil was rich and moist. He started to dig a hole there, hoping to make a little puddle of water that would soothe his thirst. But as he dug, his fingers found something. It was about the size of an egg, but totally round. A beautiful and perfect pearl. And it was warm to the touch, and it seemed to faintly glow. The boy did not know what it was, but he felt that it was something precious, and so he took it back to his hut to his mother and asked her what they should do with it. His mother did not know what it was, but like her son, she felt that it was something precious, and she felt that her son had been meant to find it, and was meant to keep it safe. So that night, the two of them placed the orb into their jar of rice, the jar which was nearly empty, to keep it safe and to keep it from rolling away in the darkness. The two of them lay down to sleep, and even though they were both hungry and thirsty, sleep soon came upon them. But in the night they were woken up by a strange sound. It sounded like a tapping and a tinkling. At first they thought it might be rain, and the boy rushed outside to see if the drought had broken. But there was not a cloud in the sky, and the earth was still hard and dry. His mother, though, from inside the hut, called out in amazement for him to come inside and see. The jar of rice, the jar that had been almost empty, it was overflowing. The sound that they heard was the sound of the rice falling onto the ground as it poured out from the jar. An idea struck the boy. He reached down into the jar and drew out the pearl. He then ran to the centre of the village, calling and shouting for everyone to wake up. 
people came wondering what this commotion was about, and when they had gathered in the centre of the village, the boy went to the well and told them to lower him down to the bottom. This they did with ropes, and when he was down at the bottom of the well, the boy placed the pearl in the little puddle of water that still remained. As soon as he placed it in the water, the water began to rise and grow. He called, quickly, pull me up, pull me up. And so they did, and watched in amazement as the well filled and began to overflow. The people cried for joy, gathered buckets and pots and everything they could to fill with water, lest it should stop again. But it did not stop. The water flowed and flowed, and the village was happy. The boy discovered that anything the pearl was placed in, any container, any jar or box, no matter how close to empty it was, once the pearl was placed inside it, it would soon be overflowing. The village, they were not thirsty any more. They need not fear the drought. They had plenty to eat. They were happy. But news of their prosperity spread, and it soon reached the ears of a greedy and miserly merchant. He had strong boxes filled with gold. He had rooms of treasure, but he always wanted more. And he began to think what he might do with such a pearl. If he placed it in a chest of gold or a chest of rubies, how his riches might grow. And so he decided he would take the pearl for himself. He had his servants fill a chest with gold and he went to the village. He found the boy who had found the pearl and become its guardian and said, Boy, I will give you a chest of gold for that pearl. Think of all you could buy with it. Think of what a rich man you would be with a chest of gold. But the boy shook his head. The pearl was not a thing that could be sold. The merchant went away and the next day came back, this time with two chests of gold. Think about it, boy. Think about the house you could buy for your mother. With this gold, you could see that she lived out the rest of her days in luxury. But again the boy shook his head. The pearl was not a thing that could be sold. And the merchant said, Well, boy, I have three chests of gold. I am a rich man. Think of the soldiers I can buy with three chests of gold. Think how they will come and they will burn the village to the ground. The pearl will be mine. He went away and indeed began to buy the service of soldiers, of mercenaries and men at arms. The boy ran to his mother. What should he do? Should, should he give the pearl to the merchant so he would not burn the village? But his mother told him no. He was right. The pearl was not a thing that could be sold. He had been the one to find it, so he must be the one to protect it. He must hide it away somewhere it could not be found. The boy tried to find a place to hide the pearl, but any spot he placed it, the pearl's magic soon gave it away. If he tried to bury it in the ground... Instantly flowers and plants and shrubs and trees would start to grow. The same if he tried to hide it in the hollow of a tree or if he tried to place it in a jar. Wherever the pearl was put, it always made things grow and multiply. In desperation, the boy, not knowing what else to do, swallowed the pearl. He felt it travelling down his throat into his stomach. And once it was placed in his stomach, he began to feel a burning 
a terrible heat growing in him and a great thirst as well. He was close to where the trickle of the river was still flowing. He knelt down and he began to drink. He drank deeper and deeper from the water, trying to drown the thirst. But as he drank, the water in his belly began to grow and multiply around the pearl and still he drank more and more. He drank so much of the river that he became the river. He became the dragon of the river, the spirit of the river. He rose up into the air, the water flowing with him. He flew high in the sky in circles until he saw the home of the merchant, where the soldiers were assembling to burn the village to the ground. He began to fly about the house, flying in circles, and with every lap he made, water began to rise from the ground, growing higher and higher. The mercenaries assembled there, seeing the flood rise, ran from the place, not wanting to be weighed down by their armour. But the merchant, miserly as he was, could not leave his treasures behind, and even as the water rose to his knees, to his hips, he kept trying to stuff gold and gems into his pockets and carry out the chests. And when the boy who was the dragon, who was the river, had made his last circle, there was no sign of the house that had been there, no sign of the treasure, and no sign of the miserly merchant. The boy who was the dragon, who was the river, flew back to his mother. He embraced her and she embraced him. He told her the village would be safe, but he had to leave. He could not stay, for he was the river, and the river, it must flow along its course. His mother was sad too, but she knew he had to go. She waved him farewell as he flew back to place the river down along the earth so it would flow once more. But as he flew, he kept looking back over his shoulder to look to see if his mother was still waving. Every time he turned, he saw she was still waving to him. And every time he turned, the river made a great bend. The boy who was the dragon, who was the river, turned back to see if his mother was still waving 24 times. And so now the river has 24 bends. And the boy who is the river, who is the dragon, he watched over the people of the village and all of the villages along the river bank and is still doing so to this very day. And that is one of my favourite dragon stories. I've been reading, well, actually listening on audiobook to E. Nesbitt's The Book of Dragons, which is very, very enjoyable. E. Nesbitt, uh, she's the woman who wrote The Railway Children. She wrote Five Children and It. She wrote loads of stuff, including some ghost stories and a wonderful fairy tale about a princess called Melisande, who has a trouble first with her hair and then with her height, which you can see me reading um, and enjoying the beautiful illustrations by PJ Lynch over on our Facebook page. Well, actually, that reminds me, um, if you do go onto our Facebook page every day for for this lockdown thing, Shannon is reading one of the Grimm's fairy tales she's working her way through and she's going to keep going one story a day until, as she says, the madness ends or she runs out of stories, whichever happens first. So, yeah, if you need more stories, go check them out on the Facebook page. I'm also on the YouTube channel reading my way through The Princess and the Goblin, which is 
again, one of my favourite books from my childhood. I should really do an episode about goblins someday. I'm going on a tangent again. Where was I? Oh yes, E. Nesbeth. So I've been listening to the stories in The Book of Dragons and I love her writing. I love, she has this beautiful, almost nonsensical logic. It's the logic of fairy tales. So there's, there is a, a plague of dragons who are mostly quite small and not too bothersome, apart from the occasional large one that eats prime ministers. So two children decide, well, obviously they need to sort out this dragon problem. They've got a dragon problem. What should they do? Well, go wake up St. George. Where is St. George? He's probably in St. George's church. The stories were written for children, but I, as an alleged adult, am very much enjoying them. But I have noticed most of her dragons, well, they're they're the villain dragons. They don't tend to talk. They seem to be more cunning than intelligent. Uh, they're depicted very much as beasts uh, who want to eat people rather than intelligent beings. And I don't know when in the West we changed our depiction of dragons and started well, showing dragons as being intelligent, rational beings, capable of their own thought, their own motive, their own societies. But a book series that I think depicts dragons very well and depicts dragons as highly intelligent creatures would be the Tamaraire series by Naomi Novak. The Tamaraire series, it's an alternative history fantasy, which is basically Napoleonic War, but with dragons. And it is brilliant. I love it. I listened to it on, well, I listened to all of the series on audiobook. They're available on audiobook, as are many of her other works. I Also, I'd recommend Spinning Silver if you're looking for more of her works. Sorry, back to Tamaraire. I love the books. I love the way she's depicted the dragons. Uh, dragons in this, they are they are as intelligent as people and some dragons, like some people, are more intelligent than others. And there's the whole different... Dragons in this world have been sort of around for as long, if not longer, than humans. And different human societies have different ways of interacting and dealing with dragons. For instance, in England, nearly all of the dragons are used by the military. And sort of almost from the moment of hatching, they are conscripted into military service. And the aviators who fly with the dragons, they know that they are, they know that they're intelligent and they have personalities and that they're like people. But by and large, they're still treated as animals, treated as, you know, respected animals, but still pretty much treated as animals. But then in the series, you see how in different places, the dragons, their relationship with humans is very different. For instance, Tamarere is, uh, he's actually a Chinese dragon who, due to a series of unforeseen events, ends up being hatched on a British ship uh, and taking Lawrence, who was meant to be a Navy captain, as his captain, his aerial captain. But they travel to China and see how in China, dragons and humans are more or less equal, possibly with the dragons being slightly superior. But dragons take part in government, in education. They're, they're pretty much just larger humans who fly. But then they travel at one point to Africa and see how the dragons in different places interact with the humans there, where the dragons believe, are believed to be the spirits of the ancestors and they are there to protect the people, the people of their tribe or their family. And then over to the Incan Empire and the Incan dragons are feathered. Their relationship with humans and it's 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 really wonderful. I highly recommend the series. I 
greatly enjoyed it. I love the dragons. I love the personalities of the dragons. I love how they interact with each other, how they interact with the humans. I love the one point where the dragons almost accidentally form a socialist state. So I'd recommend these books if you if you like dragons, if you like alternative history, if you like fantasy, if you like that period of history, which is Napoleonic War, Regency, um, but seeing a slightly different angle to it than Jane Austen, a slightly different angle with added dragons, well, then you might also enjoy this book. I, I'd really recommend it to anyone who's looking for a, a bit of escape to what's going on at the moment. I mean, dragons are an ultimate escape. And I have been rambling about dragons now for um, almost 40 minutes. I hope I've made some sense and been vaguely coherent. Thank you for listening. If you want more stories, head over to the Facebook page where Shannon is uploading uh, a video of her reading a Grimm's fairy tale every day. She generally uploads them at about 11am and there's a good back catalogue of Grimm's fairy tales for you to work your way through if you need some stories. I'm also working my way through The Princess and the Goblins by George MacDowell on our YouTube and both our YouTube and our Facebook can be found as Tales from the Shadows. Similarly, we're also on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, we're at Tales Shadows. And on Instagram, we're at Tales from the Shadows. Uh, links are in the descriptions of this episode anyway. Please do get in touch with us. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Please tell me, uh, what are your views on dragons? Do you like dragons? Are you frightened by dragons? Are you... You don't really have any strong feelings anyway about dragons? Do you have a favourite dragon story? Also, question I've got, what makes a dragon? Because I've got a theory that my dog Mimi might secretly be a dragon. I will talk more about that later, but I think Mimi might be a dragon. If you know anyone, human or otherwise, who you think might secretly be a dragon, please tweet it at us. And if you really like what we're doing and would like to support us, we have a Patreon and a Ko-fi. Uh, again, links in the description. Thank you for listening. Keep well, keep safe. Goodbye.